A lot of issues on the table as far as New York State is concerned. The Governor Kathy Hochul approaching a deadline, December 31st, uh, for signing or vetoing scores of bills already approved by the state ledge earlier this year. Here to discuss is uh, New York State Senator Anthony Palumbo, of course, leading the way in the first senatorial district. Always great having him on. Sir, how you been? Everything okay? Yeah, I've been great, Jay. Thanks for having me. Good to be on. Great having you. Great having you. So much going on. Uh, we got a deadline coming up. A lot of people probably not aware that uh, end of year makes, uh, you know, interesting uh, times up in Albany with so much uh, as far as the bills, either a signage or maybe a veto uh, could be in play here. Uh, but uh, you got a lot on the line, and I know you're going to be busy as you enter the chambers back again in January, huh? Oh, yeah. And everything resets after a new cycle. Um, you have to resubmit your bills and start from scratch. And all the bills go through the committee process, back to the floor. you got to get them through both houses, and you need to start again. So this is um, a really important time for a lot of us because these are bills that passed way back when. And what people don't realize is it depends on when you submit it to the governor. When we do it during session, um, right. It's really, the governor has 10 days to respond, but most of the time there's a lot more to it. Um, the real work begins after you get through both houses where you want public hearings, any memoranda, any you know outside information that you can give to the governor and her staff and her council to convince them that this is a good idea. Um, and then the lobbying begins, lobbyists twist the, try to twist arms to try and get changes to it and so forth. So um, this is an important time for sure, and we do have a, a very significant few bills that are still kicking around to be signed or vetoed, um, and one of them is with local elections where um, we have, just yeah. to give you the dynamics, I know I've said it before in the state, but we have, um, you know, it, 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 the overall enrollment of New York is right around 50% is registered Democrat. 23% is independent, meaning non-affiliated, and 22% is Republican. So it benefits the Democrats to have more bodies at the polls just um, you know, organically, because clearly they outnumber Republicans more than two to one. So in a, little, in, in a real slick move, they tried to move local elections to even years where there'd be either a gubernatorial or presidential election, um, and that's extremely controversial, and that's on the governor's desk as well. Um, the governor, of course, is a Democrat, and it would benefit Democrats. So it's really uh, a little inside baseball, but it's really kind of dirty pool when you think about it. That uh, you know the fact that they're going to now rig local elections so that during a presidential cycle you'll be voting on dog catcher and mayor, um, where local issues will be completely drowned out by the federal ones. So it's really a bad idea, in my opinion. Yeah, it's just so uh, it's nonsensical. I mean, you know, here's the thing. Um, you know, Democrats are pointing out, Senator, you know, voter participation, I guess, is high when the governor or president is up for election. Counties will save money uh, by holding fewer elections. Of course, on the other side, they say some of the local issues won't get the attention that they deserve in even number of years. And local races to be dominated by the national themes. You know, and, and that's kind of true, you know, when you think about it, because some of the Local, the local aspect of things kind of gets lost in the sauce a little bit uh, during a federal year. We know that. 
So to me, uh, you're not doing anybody any favors uh, as far as communities and everything else with issues and, and in play, and only to have to wait. It's, I don't think it's fair. I think if you polled uh, many a resident out there, they don't be left out in the cold like that. Without question. And it's so disingenuous. So when you think that argument through, that, well, we need better voter participation, those of us that live in the field of elections um, and you analyze the numbers and you go through everything, um, you know, after the fact you do an analysis, um, once the voting is done, the trail-off or, or the, the fact that people come in in a presidential election, they vote for president, and usually there are even some judges there, or governor in the even years, and then there's a drop-off as you move down the list because they're not really interested, even when it gets Senate Assembly. My Senate district is 330,000 people. There are 63 of us statewide controlling pretty significant policy, and we always have less than Congress, which is right next to us or even U.S. Senate, if that's on the ballot that year. So it has nothing to do with, quote, voter turnout. It has to do with garnering votes for your party, because if the if, if the, the voters are interested in a local issue, say a village issue, they're going to turn out and vote in that off year. They're not going to turn out and vote for president and then just so happen to check the box in the village election because a lot of people will walk in and they vote their party. They'll go Republican across the line, Democrat all the way across the line to the end of the page, because they're really there to vote for president or governor or sometimes Congress. Um, but as you get down to the smaller um, offices and elected positions, they're really so much more significant to the local person that very, very rarely would someone come in in this hypothetical to vote on a really important village issue, you know, because they don't even really have parties in village elections oftentimes. They're just like the, you know, save Mineola party or whatever it may be. They're not going to come in and skip over president and skip over governor to get to that important village issue. So 100% drowned it out. And more importantly, because in those elections, millions and millions of dollars are spent. In my Senate election in 2020, my opponent spent $3.4 million trying to get their message out. How is that going to affect when you think about mm. just in my Senate district in the future election that has similar type numbers? Who in the village in the, uh, running for Greenport mayor is going to be able to get any of their message out when their mailbox and TV is, is filled with stuff relative to my race and the congressional race? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense at all. State Senator Anthony Palumbo with us uh, discussing some of the year end stuff. Uh, as far as Albany is concerned, a signature of veto, we shall see. Now, the other um, I'll be looking at here from the criminal justice category, Senator, is, you know, you got a lot of bills uh, going through the legislature, and among those is one that uh, a, lot, a lot of people say will make it easy to challenge wrongful com- convictions. It would allow someone who previously pled guilty, perhaps maybe on the pressure to plea bargain or whatever, uh, to lay the challenge of conviction by removing some procedural bar- barriers for getting a court to consider new evidence besides just DNA. A lot of the backers know in a recent ruling uh, centered by the top court, it states, uh, you know, law dictates a person who pled guilty can lay a challenge a conviction only if there is DNA evidence to put their claim. 
another one would compel judges who hear arraignments um, to take at least a couple hours of training annually in the state's bail law, which is an absolute joke uh, in itself, the bail stuff we know about. What about uh, what about that type of uh, situation, uh, Senator, regarding the DNA and everything else? This, you know, to me, the DNA stuff, uh, is vital, should be uniformed as far as in every type of case where it can help solve. Uh, that is it. We know there's been a lot of pushback over the years, though. Well, sure. And that's, um, I mean, really, when you think about the education on the bail law, this is just to fit their, um, just the narrative. The judges don't understand the bail law. The bail law is great. The fact that you can't set bail, and this is yeah. 100% accurate, what I'm about to say. If I sell less than two ounces of fentanyl, which is a ton of drugs, the court cannot set bail. That amount of fentanyl could kill hundreds, plural, of people. Several hundred, a couple hundred people at least. And you can't set bail. That is the fact about the bail law. And they're using some anecdotal evidence where a judge would say, I can't set bail in this case. You're released. That's what the law is. I don't know what to say. And the judges were wrong. In some of these, many of these upstate areas have local town and village justices where you actually don't need to be a lawyer. And they're such small counties. Some of these counties upstate have more cows than people, so they can't really get lawyers to serve. So that was the logic behind that law. But you've got people who, you know, are um, maybe mistaken on a few rare occasions. And that happened at the beginning, I believe. And there were now there we are on our fourth iteration of the bail law because it's been such a disaster that even with Democrat supermajorities that are, you know, pro defendant, they've had to come back and make all these changes because it's been terrible and it's still terrible um, for society and for public safety. So that in and of itself is just simply to give them cover and say, well, the judges are just they're so dopey. They don't know what's going on. Meanwhile, the judges go to judge school every year. They're required to do this, and when they're first elected, they do weeks of training, and most of them are, are lawyers, and overwhelmingly in the higher courts, they're clearly, uh, they have to be lawyers, and they have to go through a screening process as far as their eligibility um, to even be considered uh, for a judge and to be on the ballot. So there's a lot to that um, to unwrap, but the bottom line is I think it's just simply to give cover so that they can say, oh, no, don't worry. The judges just didn't know what they were doing. Our law is fantastic. So once they get their training, we'll fix it again, and you'll all be safe. So that's really that aspect. But later again, again, we have vehicles on the other question regarding reviewing criminal convictions. We have several vehicles. In addition to an ordinary appeal, we have a 330 motion, as it's called, prior to sentencing, under C- Criminal Procedure Law Section 440, we have post-sentencing motions where there's new evidence for the court to consider. And let's keep in mind, if you're acquitted uh, on a case, if you're found not guilty, the prosecutor can't appeal. There are only very, very rare circumstances which almost aren't relevant to a conviction or an acquittal. If you go home and and the jury says not guilty, it's over. So the only convictions, quote unquote, that are being reviewed are where the person is actually convicted. If you're found not guilty, you walk. So the prosecution doesn't have the opportunity to review where a judge makes a bunch of mistakes. The defendant has an, an inordinate amount, rightfully so, 
they need due process, and we need to make sure trials are fair without question. Which it's, it's America. Um, so, and I've been on both sides of the aisle as a prosecutor and defense attorney. So, you know, with that perspective, we absolutely right. do need to make sure that people are properly convicted. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're continuing to move the goalposts and to give defendants even more opportunity to continue to, to just get several bites of the apple. Um, you know, there needs to come a time, a point in time, where there needs to be a little bit of consideration for a victim. When victims finally get it, when there's a conviction of a violent felon, the fact of the matter is they, there needs to be some closure where that conviction stands, the person serves their debt to society. They've got many, many vehicles to take a shot at having it overturned and getting fairness. But when it gets to the end and they don't have any proof, really, that, that the DNA proof supports their claim is what the current law is, this would allow them to just throw uh, you know, everything, uh, something at the wall and see if it sticks and have it reviewed anyway, even if the DNA evidence doesn't support their claim. That, to me, is unfair. No, no doubt. There's no question. And, you know, I go back to the day of of Toronto, the Howard Beast jogger was killed by Chanel Lewis, and how vital familial DNA was in solving that case. I mean, that should be a template of everything going forward. It's a, it's a clear practice of trying to determine uh, as far as safety is concerned uh, and trying to solve cases, you know, it shouldn't even be in question as well as the clean slate stuff, you know, which Senator, I've always said was a brazen assault on justice. You know, you talk about accountability and community safety and everything else. I mean, you talk about legislation uh, that is egregious to the max, uh, you know, regarding the obliteration of records of individuals who have committed crimes. Everybody's a right to know one's past. I'm sorry. Uh, I would want to know if my kid's on a school bus driven by an individual uh, who might have uh, done something in the particular as far as uh, young children are concerned. You know, uh, I want to know about it. I think when you wipe out a criminal record without consideration for the severity, uh, it leaves a lot of questions here. A lot of questions. I think employers have a right to know. Everybody's a right to know. Uh, who could be truly a danger to society? Listen, I'm all about second chances, but now we're going to eradicate everything and start all over again. Uh, come on, I, I don't get, I don't, I don't see this. And the most offensive part is you don't need to do anything for it. If you did not take a single class on, say, anger management, if it's endangering the welfare of a child, for example, like you just said, if you're convicted of abusing children, just physically abusing. Let's not even talk about the, something more egregious. And you just can't control yourself. You have a terrible, terrible temper. You have no tolerance for kids. You can't stand kids. And you've knocked them around on, on several occasions. That gets automatically sealed to the world, regardless of what you do. You don't take anger management classes. You don't try and rehabilitate yourself. You do nothing. And prior to clean slate, as I've just said before, we also have several vehicles to have a felony and misdemeanor sealed. Two bites of the apple. Conviction, that is, because overwhelmingly uh, most cases are pled, and usually they're pled to a much lesser crime. So if you're still convicted of a felony, you could apply to the court and say, Judge, I've earned it. I've been rehabilitated. It was because of my drug abuse or drug, drug use back in the day and alcoholism or whatever it may be. I've addressed those issues. I'm moving on with my life. I'm an upstanding member of society. 
that's great. Oh, no. You absolutely don't have to do anything. And there's a loophole in this law that we pointed out and was not corrected. If you get a new charge in New York while the clock is ticking, so you've got your two years or your seven years for your felony, um, you've been out of custody, and even though you may be on probation, the clock is ticking, and seven years later, your felony is sealed automatically. If at year six you get a new charge in New Jersey, it doesn't stop the clock. If you have an out-of-state charge or even conviction, you still get your case sealed under New York law. This is how outrageous it is. I yeah. don't understand the logic that the Democrat majority is thinking when they think this is fair. I don't understand it, but they do, and the governor signed it. So we're living in a crazy time, Jay, where it's just bananas. If you told me this stuff and you and I talked about it 10 years ago, you'd laugh at me and say, Palumbo, you're crazy. How dare you even suggest that nobody's going to do something That's like true. that. But here we are. Here we are. It's you insane. are correct, sir. Yeah. And here we are 10 years later, right? And I'll tell you one final thought here regarding this congestion pricing. Um, you know, to me, this is the enchilada of them all almost, you know. Uh, to pay an extra, what, 15 bucks to enter Midtown Manhattan, that'll start, I think, in May of next year. Uh, you know what? This could be a big gift if you kind of analyze it. And I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, you head to Manhattan, what, south of 60th Street. Um, we know about cashless bail and everything else. And we know how Republicans used it to defeat Democrats in prior election cycles, particularly here on the island, uh, Senator. And we know the governor, former one, Cuomo, uh, you know, he kind of approved it way back in, what, 2019, I think it was? Uh, and all in all, Kathy Hochul backs this program to raise about a billion for mass transit and reduce congestion. Listen, this is another way of saying, hey, MTA, we're going to take care of you. We're going to give you a bailout uh, on the backs of hardworking New Yorkers. Uh, don't worry. We're going to fix it and everything else. Uh, you'll be you'll be back in the black again. No problem here because the MTA can't get out of its own way, Senator Plum. But we know that. But, you know, you look at all the polling and everything else, it is vastly unpopular. The latest one I read from Siena, uh, where folks found 73% opposed congestion pricing, 22% supported it. Suburbs where Democrats already lost, by the way. Uh, all top countywide sits amidst this backlash here. But, uh, you know, to me, it's another way of getting wins uh, for Republicans. If they want to keep up this nonsense, they will lose seats without question on this one. Well, you never know. I mean, look, it's, I almost feel as if the governor's given up on the suburbs because she got smoked in the suburbs. And you think about the, overall, the overlay, as I said before, more than two to one. It should be, if every Republican voted Republican, and every Democrat voted Democrat. The governor should be winning statewide. <clears throat> Excuse me. You should be winning about 70-30. And she eked it out and won by less than five percentage points against Lee Zeldin, a great candidate. And she got crushed in the suburbs. Because you always have that 25% of party affiliates 
on both sides. You're going to have people who are going to vote Democrat, whether you could have, you know, I, I don't even want to say, you could have, you know, Joseph Stalin running on the Democratic line, they'll vote for him. So that is always, you're always going to have 25%. But in New York City, this benefits New York City. Who are they bludgeoning for driving into New York City? People in the suburbs. So this benefits the MTA, this benefits yeah. people who use public transportation on a daily basis. So at the end of the day, New York City is going to still vote overwhelmingly for the governor. In the last election, she got over 70% out of New York City and voted for the governor. When people, when, you know, inflation's outrageous, crime was on the, was, was booming, which it still is. People are getting pushed in front of subways. The city's filthy. It smells like marijuana. And people said, 70% of them said, you know what's great? Everything in New York City now is really how we want it. And they voted for solid Democrat again. So this is, I think, an abandonment of the suburbs that people know statewide, at least, they can win because New York City votes for them, votes for Democrats no matter who you are, blindly, and they can just beat the heck out of those of us in the suburbs. So did it have an effect in the suburban areas? It did. It did. We, you know, currently seven of us are Republicans out of nine on Long Island. Um, but, you know, this is, they can, they're pretty smart, too, on the other side. And, you know, I saw Jay Jacobs, the, uh, the, the, the state chairman and Nassau County Democrat chairman, said all Republicans are just going to try and use scare tactics and threaten people because that's all they do. They don't have solutions. Well, it's not about scaring people. It's a $15 tax on the suburbs, period. That's what it is. And we just want people to be aware of that. And if they vote for Democrats again, then shame on them. I guess they like it. Um, this is going to hurt the working class people, the working class man and woman, um, unfortunately, because they're the ones who need to take their trucks and tools, for example, into New York City. The electricians and plumbers can't take the train with all their stuff. They need to drive in. So they're the ones that are going to be hurt most. Um, it's a terrible idea. I voted against it. But here we are. It'll be implemented in May. And, uh, you know, life goes on, and we'll see. And hopefully we could just get some balance. I think a bipartisan legislature is what helps uh, New Yorkers because there's a balance. You know, there's some, some sort of diversity of thought is always a good thing. Senator, it's always great having you. I hope to see you next week, too, uh, on the island. Um, always good having you as we turn the page. Hard to believe and get ready for 2024 uh, with uh, New York State Senator Anthony Palumbo leading the way in the 1st uh, Senatorial District. You stay well. Hope to see you next week. Thank you, my friend. I hope to see you next week as well. And if I don't, please enjoy the holidays, and you be well.